my simple solution to the problem was remove people from the scene and help them feel safer. In response to attacks against Asian Americans, Maddie Park raised over $250,000 to donate cab rides to the Asian community. There is so much more work to be done. We really need to come together and tackle this issue as a community. Support the Asian community. Learn how at lovehasnolabels.com. Brought to you by Love Has No Labels and the Ad Council. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. Hey, it's Zuko and Kayla from The Wake Up Call. Enjoy your podcast, but when you're done, don't forget about us. We have a radio show. We try to bring a smile to your face every morning. We also talk to some of the hottest country stars of today, and we like to share some good news with That's What I Like. Because Lord knows that's hard to find. When you're done podcasting your podcast, listen to us at 92.3 WCOL. Set your preset on your radio right now, and don't forget you can listen to us online on the iHeartRadio app. You're listening to 100 Words or Less with Ray Harkins. Hello, hello, all you beautiful podcast humans. Welcome to this episode in which we talk to people who are influenced profoundly by punk and hardcore and DIY and metal and emo and indie rock, all of those things. This week's guest is Christina Ward. She is the, I guess, you know, sort of owner, CEO, CFO, I don't know, head honcho, as it were, of Feral House Publishing. And Feral House is an incredibly important, I guess, literary imprint, I guess that's what you'd call it, book company uh, that has published, I mean, gosh, I don't know, numerable <laughs> books that focus on subculture. Some of the ones that I got introduced to, like Lords of Chaos. And for those of you that are unfamiliar, that's basically the book that started the, I guess, greater conversation around all of the church burnings that happened over in Scandinavia. Uh, with the black metal scene and everything. They also published Choosing Death, which is the uh, author of the, or the, I guess the editor-in-chief of Decibel Magazine and his deep dive into death metal. And then they also published, I remember looking at this book so many times. I never actually purchased it, but uh, a book called Death Scenes, which was basically a uh, black and white photography book on death scenes from Los Angeles, like the Los Angeles homicide, uh, you know, department, I guess, as it were. And, uh, I just remember going to, you know, Barnes and Noble and looking at that book and just being so fascinated by the fact that, that you could publish these photos. And it was just, you know, obviously it's a mixture of gruesome curiosity and, you know, that morbid curiosity, uh, mixed with just kind of like, wow, like this is such a peek into our human existence and all of these, you know, sometimes disturbing, sometimes just like, wow, I can't believe that. But anyways, I'm really excited because Christina has also, she's written multiple books, but her new book is called Holy Food, which just get this tagline. If this doesn't get you interested, I don't know what you're doing, but how cults, communes, and religious movements influenced what we eat in American history. So 
needless to say, when Christina Ward came into my inbox, as far as being a guest on the show, I jumped at it immediately because like I said, the work that she has done at this company and not only as a person being able to work with these authors to get these amazing books, but then her being an author herself, I was so excited because yeah, talk about subculture and the immersion in it. That is exactly what Feral House does. So go to feralhouse.com and you can have so much fun browsing all of their books. And I highly suggest that if you have not read Lords of Chaos or frankly, any of their books, just dive in any subject that you are slightly curious about. They will make you smarter about it. And uh, yeah, I just am extremely excited to have Christine on the show. So let's go ahead and speak to her. But before we do that, you want to support the show, right? How about you do that for $0? You can do that by going to the Apple podcast page, toss a rating and review. I very much appreciate that. And I know everybody tells this to you, like you hear it all the time on every single podcast, but it genuinely does make a difference. The algorithm treats the podcast differently. All of these things happen. And plus it costs you zero dollars. Or if you want to have an even lower lift, go on the Spotify page and just leave a rating for that. Again, the algorithms work in, in the podcast favor. It introduces the show to more people who need to hear this and are interested in these type of conversations. And you can always, this again costs zero dollars, just email the show, 100wordspodcast at gmail.com. All of those things are greatly appreciated. So let us talk to Christina Ward, the CFO, I don't know, see something important human at Feral House and the author of the upcoming book called Holy Food. Let's go. For me personally, Feral House jumped into my life, um, you know, in my teenage years, once I started to get into, you know, punk, hardcore subculture in general, as it, you know, definitely uh, hit my interests of like, taboo topics like, you know, extreme music and cults and Satanism and all that sort of stuff where I was like, wow, what is all this stuff? Um, since the publishing company runs the gamut of, you know, types of books you guys cover and obviously types of subjects that you cover, how do you kind of like pull the threads as far as the commonality between all of them? Is it just, you know, bound by the fact of your, you know, the publishing house is curious about telling stories of all shapes and sizes or how do you view it? Um, we view it a little differently and I view it uh, a little differently. There's a through line uh, of cults to Satanism, to the music. And what we're really talking about and what we're very fascinated by is that idea of counterculture, of outsider culture, of the people and the the music and the art created by folks who are outside of the mainstream. And that I would say is like the through line. And that will always um, pique my curiosity about um, whether it's an artist, say uh, we wrote, we published a, a biography about 20 years ago about Moondog. And, you know, your listeners are probably familiar with Moondog. If not, go look them up. Um, but we also published uh, more infamously the Lords of Chaos, opposite ends of the spectrum uh, on what the musical styles were, but yet um, both are very much icons of outsider culture and creation. And so that that's really what spurs that interest. And that's both in uh, music and as well as like odd politics and, and kind of odd religion, anything that's a bit of outside mainstream culture is interesting to me. Sure. Absolutely. And uh, I, I, 
was going to bring up Lords of Chaos a little bit later, but uh, we since you brought that up, it's definitely you know one of those like seminal books within the context of anybody that is starting to figure out like the, how these different musical styles have impacted the broader culture uh, in general. And I know that that uh, book has, you know, gone through so many different uh, iterations of, you know, people adapting it into, you know, movies and obviously trying to document it in other forms. Um, were, you know, d- did you, cause I know that you had been with Feral House for about 10 years, correct? Or has it been longer? Um, it's yeah, about 10 years. Um, and, you know, a fan before that. And also um, I was active in um, kind of art books and again, punk and outside, outside culture as well. Right, right. The the only reason I mentioned that is like what your experience was in regards to, you know, Lords of Chaos in in general, as far as like, whether it was you just observing it like me on the outside, or, you know, if you had any uh, insight into the uh, machinations of (laughs) all the different iterations that people have kind of put towards the book. What's interesting is, so uh, my first experience of it was as a fan when it was first published in 1999. And again, to me, it was fascinating. I was not a fan per se of that extreme heavy metal kind of music, but the culture and, and how these guys got to the their endpoint, their logical endpoint, which was insane in my mind to kill someone that you were in, in a conflict with is, is, is not sane behavior. Um, so it, I, again, as a fan first, and then starting to work with Feral House, seeing just how complicated it can be to um, bring one, a book into a, into a movie format. Um, that book had been optioned multiple times before it um, was actually went, put into production into the uh, movie that most folks have saw a few years ago by Jonas Ackerland. Um, and then the other interesting thing is you say about the different iterations in the life of a book like Lords of Chaos is how misinterpreted it is and how much criticism that is based on nothing that book has endured. Uh, specifically, it often gets called um, like a Nazi book, which, yeah. which is uh, no. Um, and a book, it talks about the uh, these guys having these kind of fascistic beliefs and as well as interest in that culture of as many teenage boys were. I don't know a teenage boy that boy that really hasn't drawn a swastika on the back of a notebook at some time in their life, especially one who grew up in the 70s and 80s, like like these guys did. So again, that's always the one of the fascinating things to me is just the fallout. And that goes larger to, to a lot of the books that we publish, where people almost willfully misinterpret the content, or as well as the intention for the, for their own purposes. Right, exactly. It becomes like a, you know, sort of totem as it were that they are like viewing this through like whatever whatever viewpoint they want to share they try to use that book as kind of like you know hey oh oh, yeah this 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 will serve the purpose of what i'm trying to do here yeah exactly and and that was always you know upsetting in a way to us it's hard to correct that i mean and that's the, the nature of every art. Once you put the art out into public, you it's not yours anymore. You don't have much control over how people are going to uh, view it or view into it. And that's the other thing that I find interesting, especially for our books, and it goes to a number of books, is we are always judged by the 
the most extreme reaction. We're judged by the worst actors and discounting the fact that millions of people have read our books over, you know, the 35 years of existence and, um, you know, nothing bad has happened to them nor to anyone else. But much like I, I'm remembering back to the first the first wave of the satanic panic when Judas Priest were uh, brought before the courts, essentially trying to be held responsible for uh, a poor, disturbed young man who attempted to kill himself and cited Judas Priest lyrics as somehow influential. Um, again, this is irrational. And yet I think it's interesting that culturally we're back into a similar place. Yeah. Oh, definitely. And I, I, I think it's, I mean, the, once you've lived long enough, you can see the cycles of not only culture, but the way that people interpret that culture and like everything that is old is new again. And you can see that, you know, pattern repeat itself over history, but it is interesting when you look at something as young as a, you know, subculture, whether it's punk or hardcore that's existed, you know, since the, whatever late seventies, early eighties, um, you know, ostensibly that's pretty young when you're comparing it to, you know, all these other things that uh, obviously you guys traffic in and cover. So y you have this wide range of observations that you can kind of, you know, uh, observe. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, my background a little bit is uh, I'm a historian, I, you know, I study history, American history, particularly. And so what you said about this kind of ignorance of the past and these cycles repeating themselves is absolutely proven in, you know, historical context, not just even in the recent 40, you know, modern years uh, that we're talking about, like post late 70s. But even prior to that is I, I just laugh at um, the religiosity, the Christo fascism that's occurring right now in the United States has happened before. They've attempted this a number of times over the years. And I think that anybody who's truly concerned, one should, you know, speak up, fight back, but also know that these guys never win. They, they, they're never able to pull it off. Right. Exactly. Yeah. At, at some point, like, even if you, I mean, just from my own personal perspective, like I was, uh, you know, ostensibly I would describe myself as a, you know, a Christian or believing in some sort of higher faith. But the fact that I personally was attracted to all of these other things that off offered a different point of view and whether or not I, you know, agreed with it, I, I still understood that there's these commonalities of, uh, there's these commonalities of beliefs that it's like, yeah, I don't hate a person that believes in Satanism <laughs> or whatever. It's like, even though they're quote unquote diametrically opposed, it's like pulling those through lines where you see like, you know, even though people feel like there's these different shades of, um, you know, nuance with everything, like there's probably more in common than you would believe with these things that seem so opposed to one another. Um, I agree with, with that idea. And it's also why we try to publish these uh, books, essentially, you know, that again, celebrating and identifying, you know, again, celebrating unknown artists like Moondog or the, you know, Rocky Erickson to the uh, musicians in extreme music. We've recently published one about women uh, in punk bands uh, from the 75 to 83. Right. 90 women-led bands. Again, that we celebrate, but we also look to inform. Uh, a lot of the books and the ideas that we're talking about, we started before the, the days of uh, the internet when all this information was widely available. And so you had to put information out into the world for people to learn about it. Um, 
a lot of times the early books, say Apocalypse Culture, Apocalypse Culture 2, even and Lenin Words of Chaos, which you know were in the 90s, these are books that were presenting information and systems of belief and ways of creating art that were antithetical to what was happening at the time. And you were unable to learn about these things unless you read one of our books. Um, And we think that's really important. And we think it's important still today that information makes a person smarter. We believe that people have the ability to discern between uh, seriously harmful ideas, as well as ones that are just challenging to their own belief system. Yeah. Oh, I love how you put that. And I, I do, that was something I was going to ask in regards to the, um, you know, the shift in way people obviously consume information and obviously consume, you know, pop culture, broadly speaking, and, you know, reading obviously is not going to go away, but the, you know, physical format of books and the way that people are able to find out information like you're talking about. It's like, yeah, you could do some, you know, light research in the, you know, depths of the internet in the late nineties or whatever. But if you wanted to, you know, go to the source and have something that is building a context around whatever subculture you're interested in, these books were like at lifelines. You were like, Oh, so now, now I understand like what this particular culture is all about because it's, you know, it's as comprehensive as you, you can be. So did that, uh, I'm guessing that that shifted uh, the point of view in regards to the the way that you guys were trying to, you know, document particular stories after, you know, the advent of the internet? It did a bit. Um, and how how it reflected is both Adam and, and myself became more interested in in the past. I mean, we're talking like late 1800s and early 1900s, because it, it harkens back to uh, what you and I were speaking of before, is that history repeats itself. And as much as um, the, the children of the Internet uh, like to think that maybe it existed in a vacuum or that these ideas are brand new, oftentimes they're not. Uh, there is a long through line of kind of these odd Ball ideas a lot of times. And so I, I really enjoyed, so did Adam, uh, bringing some of the previous iterations of this information to the public. And I think that's where we can, we still do, and we are of value in this internet age where everything is so easily accessible, is if you go back further, I think we still have some uh, power in bringing information that was either forgotten or unknown to readers. That's a yeah, it's very true in regards to, I mean, you can look at music and clearly the uh, dawn of streaming and people being able to access music, uh, you know, in the pockets of their uh, jeans or whatever. It has that idea that like, there's clearly so much music that, you know, like doesn't make all those transitions between formats, whether it's, you know, eight track to vinyl versus tape and everything else. And so you from a publishing perspective, just like having that consistency where it's like, you know, a person can discover, you know, American hardcore and be able to purchase it. And then obviously have that, you know, kind of (laughs) that, that solid base to work off of rather than, you know, just diving into a Wikipedia page or whatever. Yeah. And it also speaks to um, the value of books in general is what we're seeing now in this great media conglomeration age 
is websites that were hosted and did provide information that was really fascinating and interesting and became a centralizing warehouse for information and a resource for people uh, researching. They get bought by a hedge fund and the next day it's gone. Then anybody who was, uh, say, writing for that website, they're out of a job. Their archive of work. I know a lot of journalists um, in in many different uh, levels of, of media that are just horrified by what's happening, essentially because the archives are missing. The archives are gone. So much so when a lot of the newspaper consolidation that's happening now being bought by these venture funds, and these are just mainstream newspapers, one of the first things they're actually doing is uh, actually physically dumping the morgue. And the morgue in journalism talk is, is the archives, the physical, all the filing cabinets, all the notes, all the clippings. They're getting tossed into a dumpster. And once that is gone, it's gone forever. Right. Yeah, there's no, because <laughs> it's not like they have any interest in paying a person to, you know, digitally scan those things. It's mm-hmm. just like, oh, no, man, like, <laughs> this, this is a cost cutting mechanism. Like, we gotta get this out of here. Exactly. And so this is where books, especially nonfiction books, again, great. Everybody loves a, a, a fantasy novel or a sci-fi novel, whatever. Great. Um, I'm not a novel reader. Um, I, I like to have real stories of real people and real events. And I, I understand the value of that escapism, but I do think that there is a real need and we still serve um, an interested audience by publishing nonfiction books about music and culture and politics and debunking strange pseudoscience and bringing different ideas and theories about how the world operates, both on a, a, the natural level and as well as on the political net level. I think there's still value to that. And there is still interest in learning more about these topics. Sure. I, I mean, you clearly see the interest in documentaries uh, surging over the past, you know, whatever, five to 10 years. But, you know, so much of those documentaries are obviously just, you know, fluff from the particular, you know, artist or what, like, it, they're the executive producers on it. And so it's like, having that idea that this is, you know, a- as impartial as it can be in regards to a person covering a particular subject in a book, uh, that there's al- there there should always be that need for a person being interested in the nonfiction, like, tell me, tell me the story and why this is, why does this matter? Yeah. What makes it interesting to you? That's, I tell that to writers all the time. What makes it interesting to you? If you can, if you know that, then that's your way in to tell the story because then other people will be interested. Even if it's a topic that you, that maybe you think as a reader, I don't need to know about uh, Norwegian guys or Swedish guys being fighting in bands and maybe killing each other. But again, if it's a story well told and there's, and you share why you're interested in it, everyone else will be interested too. Um, and I think that's something that's lost in um, what we're seeing in, you know, we talk about internet culture versus um, kind of intellectual culture. Let's just call it what it is, um, is that there's a natural curiosity there. Whereas internet culture tends to be affinity based only where people are looking to find only like-minded people with like-minded ideas. And the conversation isn't about the, an idea per se, but it's more about reifying and reinforcing their own belief systems. There's no challenge at all. And people actually get fairly 
um, upset and, and increasingly uh, violent when their ideas are challenged. Now, for us, you know, for a feral house, what we've been doing, and it's proven by the books, is we are going to challenge you. Um, if you agree with what's printed, great, okay, good. Um, but you may disagree, and that's okay. Um, sit with the discomfort. Analyze a little bit about what makes you dislike the idea, dislike the person, uh, and dislike the music, whatever it is. That is about being human, is figuring out how do you develop a sense of values and your personal sense of what you like and what you don't. And that's how we build culture that's going to survive this internet age of quarrelsome people. Our friends at Rockabilia want to outfit your entire closet. And how can you do that easily and quickly? Well, first of all, you go to their website, rockabilia.com. And second of all, you use the promo code 100 words or less. That gets you 10% off of your entire order, which is great. That's basically giving you like $10 off a $100 order. It's great. But what Rockabilly does well is they sell officially licensed band merch from everything from Jimi Hendrix and the Grateful Dead to like Slayer, Pantera. I don't care what style of music you're into. You're probably going to be able to find some great stuff from there. Independently owned and operated, been in business for 30 plus years, ships from the Midwest here in the United States of America, Minneapolis to be precise, and uh, they got hardcore kids working there. It ticks all the boxes of things that I want to support. And so go to rockabilia.com. Promo code is 100 words or less for 10% off your entire order. Go enjoy the bounties of rockabilia.com. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different things that stress us out, right? Like maybe it's something really, really small, like, man, that parking space, it's always taken. And I wish that I would be able to like get it instead of, you know, this person that maybe, you know, is the most courteous and considerate. I know that's something very random, but it's true. We all experience different things throughout the day that trigger us in so many different ways. And there are many times where I have been like, I wish that I had a a spot or a repository for me to, you know, get this stuff off of my chest. Because if you bottle it up, that is no bueno. And then all of a sudden you explode on a coworker or a friend or a family member being like, the parking spot. And people are like, what are you talking about? That is where therapy comes in. And I love working with BetterHelp because I'm a huge advocate for therapy, broadly speaking. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, please give BetterHelp a try. It is so easy because it's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. All you do is fill out a brief questionnaire and then you get matched with a licensed therapist. And if you are not vibing with the therapist for any reason, you can switch it out at no additional charge. Get things off of your chest with BetterHelp. So visit betterhelp.com slash Ray today to get 10% off of your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash Ray. Putting the lens on you as a person for a moment, the idea that, you know, you got interested in subculture and uh, the, uh, you know, idea of being a writer and like that subversion that can take place within the context of you feeling like you can actually, you know, express your voice as a writer. How did you get um, into, I guess, you know, or introduced to like a little bit off center stuff. Uh, you know, was that during like your junior high, high school years when, you know, music started to show itself or was it, you know, through another medium? You know, interestingly enough, I'm, I'm uncommon in so much that, 
Um, I come from a long line of agnostics, atheists. Um, and so my, my dad was a huge influence because that's what he was. And, and my mother, he was a Catholic. Um, and so there was an internal conflict in the house, sure. which, which led to discussions, a lot of discussion from my father. And so I would say that he was a great open-minded individual and encouraged um, me and my brother to question everything. And I think that's really what led to this, just a general open-mindedness. And it also got me in trouble when I was in school, but, you know, suffice to say, I feel like I'm a better human being because I have this ability and has, have been, have cultivated a sense of um, skepticism, a healthy skepticism. And that only then got reinforced younger, you know, reading books more, listening to music. What I was drawn toward was things that were always a bit more challenging and feeling um, drawn towards things that were more counterculture and anti-mainstream. Sure. And, and being from, uh, correct me if I'm, if I'm wrong, but the, you were born and raised in the Milwaukee area, right? Yeah. Milwaukee. Which is, I mean, most people don't point to that as being like, you know, the, the hotbed of subculture. I mean, clearly it's a, you know, college-esque town and there's, you know, young people traveling through there, but uh, it's not the first place that people, you know, point on a map for being like, oh yeah, that's the hub of it. So you probably had to do, I guess, a lot of uh, additional work, so to speak, to get into things. Well, it's interesting of that time period. Um, and when I came up was, you know, during the eighties, really, um, the male art was a big thing and okay. like in the zine networks and there were male networks, you know, you, people would mail things, you'd mail zines back and forth. It would be like essentially like a chain letter, but you'd, you'd start getting uh, a network of people and bands coming through. And so we built these DIY kind of punk networks that, uh, truthfully, I'm still connected to many of those people today, though I will say and push back a little bit the idea of Milwaukee, and I will say this about any second tier city, there are enough outsiders, uh, enough creative people in any small town that you'll see very interesting art created, uh, music, you know, visual art, writing, if you look hard enough, um, let me say, cite from Milwaukee, folks that are, are that I know and, and that come from Milwaukee is we look at the Frogs, the band The Frogs. Mm-hmm. If your listeners are unfamiliar with The Frogs, uh, that's worth a YouTube. Get familiar, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Get familiar with The Frogs. Uh, Dekreutzen is from Milwaukee. Yep. Plastic Land is from Milwaukee. FI is from Milwaukee. Those are all folks that I came up with. And so in that isolation of second tier cities, often you'll find um, that almost the isolation um, is a, an incubator. You're forced to kind of work with the people who are with you and their influences may be a little different. And out of that, um, you get some fascinating, fantastic art created. Sure. Absolutely. No, that's, that is a good point. I, I think that. As long as you have, you know, it doesn't need to be a large network as long as there is, you know, people that are getting involved in, like you said, kind of creating their own art. And that can clearly be defined by just what's happening in the area as opposed to seeing, you know, what's happening in a large metropolitan city of just like, oh, you know, like I see my friend started a band, so I'll I'll start that, which, you know, happens in Milwaukee as well. But uh, there's a little bit more, uh, you know, insular nature to it. 
It, absolutely. Um, and then that's the choice as a, as a creator, right? And that's the benefit of the internet, as we were kind of bashing it earlier, is that has opened up a world of connectivity to people um, who are working in, say, transgressive arts or any type out, outside the mainstream. Is whereas, like I did when I was, you know, 18, I lit off for New York City because that's where you had to go to find more like-minded people. If you were going to like kind of expand and do more, um, you had to, you know, leave home. Um, and now folks can be very creative and not have to leave where they live. And if anybody's been to New York recently, um, wow, it, you, you can't be a starving artist in New York anymore. That's for sure. <laughs> no, definitely. Yeah. You, you, you get, you, you don't even get pushed out to the outer boroughs. It's basically like, yeah, so you got to live in, uh, you know, upstate, upstate New York in order to <laughs> figure it out. Yeah. Yeah. You have to get up to Albany at least. Right. And the cheap rent. <laughs> totally. Totally. Um, and so h- how did you get uh, connected to Feral House? Because, I mean, I know that you've uh, published a few books with them. Was that uh, just a function of you knowing them and kind of getting, you know, injected it, into it and then obviously got a job? Or how did that happen? Um, the trajectory was born out of the, kind of the old punk networks of, you know, bands and things. And so I knew uh, and know Alice Bag and that became, and when Alice's book was published in 2011 and she did a kind of DIY tour and reached out. And so, and that's where Adam, you know, who, you know, there's always folks you kind of know, and then you get vouched for is like, so Adam didn't know me at that time, but Alice vouched for me. And then you get other people and then you realize how like you're only one or two degrees away from anybody. And so that's how that started. Um, and then started helping Adam out on special projects and just, you know, more and more becoming involved um, until so to this day. Then sadly, after Adam's unexpected death in 2018, um, his sister, Jessica, um, is now the publisher. And then, you know, and then her and I run the company and, and do all the things to keep books coming out the door and into people's hands. Right, right. That's cool. And I, I mean, I, I love that idea because so much of it is a function of, like you said, this, you know, DIY punk, hardcore metal, whatever you want to call it of where it's like, you don't necessarily know how to do it when you start off. You're just kind of like, well, I think I like that this person knows to how like press tapes or whatever. (laughs) Like you just start to kind of build on that. Eventually you hopefully had arrive at a like semi-competent level where you're like, oh yeah, we know how to put out books now. (laughs) Like, Do we know everything? No, but we know enough to be able to push it forward. Yeah. My, my only goal, and I told Adam this years ago, is it's, you know, I, I only hope to make new mistakes. That's always my goal. <laughs> I, love, <laughs> I love that. That's a beautiful thought for anybody, really. Because, I mean, as much as all of us like to act like we know what we're doing, it's like, you know, yeah, we're just all kind of stabbing in the dark. And um, yeah, to just be like, oh, yeah, I'm not going to make the same mistake but I'll make a new one for sure. Right. Cause at least it, it means we're doing something, you know, we're, we're breaking new ground or we're trying something new. And that's something that as much as we look back um, as, as a publishing company, and it, that's because, you know, again, my inkling towards history. And I think that these stories are important to bring forward today to remind people of the, the cyclical nature of, of just how of being human. Um, but I embrace the new, I, I, I worry a little bit 
um, is we get inundated in our, we, you know, the slush box, the general inbox, and that's uh-huh. info at feralhouse.com. So here's that secret. We, we actually look at it. We do right. check it, you know. <laughs> We do check it because you never know, right? Um, of course. Once in a while, something interesting may come through. But at the same time, most of it's not interesting. What we see the most of right now, and it's making me crazy, are memoirs by old boomer men, okay? And oh. each of them have some story about how they suffered and that they were very active and did a lot for the civil rights movement. Um, now... <sighs> If all of those fellas actually did as much as they said they did, then there would have been zero oppression during the 60s. <laughs> right. So, it, it's just mind boggling. And I, I, I'm, my concern is I want younger folks to write books too. There are things in the culture that are happening today that I don't know about. I want to learn about those things. And I know people out there want to learn about them too. So I need younger people to write books. I need, you know, the millennials, the Gen Zers, whatever the heck they want to call themselves or people call them, they need to tell stories too. And stories about, you know, the music being made. How is it being made? How is it affecting culture? Tell me stories about, you know, whatever weird ass stuff that you want to tell me. These are the things that um, will be fascinating to readers, I promise. But somebody does have to write the book. And, and that is, you know, I think one of the challenges that we will face in the future is the culture of writing. It seems to be changing and morphing. And that's natural. Um, but I find that um, people aren't as interested in writing like research nonfiction. They want to tell their own story of a, like in a memoir, but the, a lot of the people writing memoirs right now just, you know, on, to be blunt about it, their life just what isn't that interesting. Sure, absolutely. Well, I mean, you could you could look at the. Uh, I mean, one of the easiest targets is obviously like Prince Harry's book or whatever, where it's just like. So you just, you just wrote about like you know being in the army. Like it, it's such a small f- focal point of a life that is wild to begin with, but the fact that so many people obviously purchase it is like, well, okay, that's that's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> it's you know, and this is the where you know American culture is right now in the sense of the kind of cult of of celebrity. There's um, a growing sense of like parasocialness in modern fandom that I find very interesting. This idea that because of the internet, we can like interact with someone we are think is famous and. In that small interaction, whether and that interaction could be just like reading their tweets, right? Looking at their Instagram. And yet we have the parasocial idea that we're friends with these people now, that we somehow know them and we have a relationship with them. When in fact, they don't. (laughs) It's a one-way relationship. Um, That to me is really interesting. And I'd like to I'd like to see an exploration, a little more deep dive into someone in looking on how these parasocial relationships are affecting actual relationships. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the kind of on that uh, tip of what you were talking about in regards to you know making new mistakes, and once you started to enter the business side of things in regards to publishing, and uh, you know having to care about because uh, clearly there is a bottom line that has to exist for the machine to keep rolling on. Uh, did you, I guess, enjoy the aspects of, you know, doing a profit and loss sheets and like all that sort of stuff uh, to be able to 
sustain the business or is that just something that you've obviously had to learn how to uh, do as you went along? I actually enjoy it. Um, cool. I enjoy it because to me, it's it's a bit about gaming the system. We are a, um, a traditional for-profit business. Uh, many independent publishers are actually nonprofits. And that means they are able to do fundraising from people. They're also able to apply for grants and funding from big businesses. And again, so not wholly reliant on what they actually publish to keep publishing the next book. Whereas we do, we can't publish more books if all of our books fail. Right. Um, And so that means we do, we make the investment in choosing wisely, as wisely as we can. And we also have distribution, which uh, for listeners familiar with like the record industry, it's very similar is that even if you're a small independent record label, like an independent publisher, you know, having a distribution partner makes a world difference in getting your stuff out in uh, to places where people can find it. Um, and so, yeah, I, I do enjoy it because I look at it as a way of kind of sticking it to the bigs, right? Um, for every Harry, Prince Harry, whatever book that's out there, if I can sell, you know, and get people interested in some strange little queer artist from Nebraska who was this actually really fantastic figure in the early, in 1920s Paris. Great. Good. I'm glad that people know about Perkins Harnley. And that means somebody didn't buy Prince Harry's book. Right. (laughs) Right. Right. Yeah. You're definitely traveling in two different lanes, but it's like for every, you know, one book you sell that it's just like, Oh yeah, that that you know negates whatever the thousand that went out the door for you know some new young adult vampire yeah. novel. Not saying that there's anything wrong with that because you know people need that to your point, but yeah, it, it feels like a win in the system. It does feel like a win, and it, it feels like you know I was just in New York for our distribution meeting, and that's they bring in all the independent publishers, the distribution, and uh, to me, I just I love being there. I laugh because all of the hoity-toity. Um, MFA industrial complex people with their fancy degrees and talking about their poetry and translation and their, you know, all these Nobel prize winners. And I'm like there, I got a book on Swedish death metal. Right. right. And you <laughs> totally. Yeah. And it's right. Exactly. From Swedish. Come on. You know, so um, I, I, I do, I still have my, uh, my punk spirit of wanting to middle fingers up as I walk into these meetings and essentially m- you know, using their their own systems to bring subversive and transgressive ideas to people. Yeah, no, I love that, and I think that's that's why it is so interesting and important that all of these independent things exist, whether it's you know record labels or whatever. Just because it's like, yeah, you can tap into the bloodstream of the distribution channels that you're talking about in order to obviously permeate more. Uh, you know, original thoughts out there, which is awesome. The, um, I I was going to ask about the, you know, I know like you were talking about your interest in history. And then I know the book that you wrote as far as like, uh, you know, food marketing and, you know, dare I say uh, propaganda Mm -hmm. really shed the light on, you know, how agendas can be pushed by, you know, industries and, you know, companies that uh, to the general public isn't clear of like, why, why do we eat jello or whatever? Um, what, 
as you were kind of going through, you know, writing that particular book, uh, what was some of the, uh, you know, most interesting revelations for you personally? Um, in, in researching American advertising cookbooks, and again, that was born out of a conversation between Adam and myself, because he loved looking at those old cookbooks, or in seeing, you know, the internet was rife with the pictures of the worst jello mold ever. And I'm like, wait, 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 there's more to it. It's not just an ugly picture. It's not just weird food. There's a reason for it. And so in the research, everything is the surprising um, political uh, history of bananas. Bananas are terrible. Um, they, bananas did not choose to be terrible, but how they got to be so pervasive in the United States is terrible. And that's a, it was actually the CIA, early CIA of the Dulles brothers, along with their old college friend, Edward Bernays, considered the father of modern advertising, working together to bring bananas to market and control Central America from, you know, democracy and, you know, quote unquote, communism. Mm -hmm. And, and that was really surprising at like how blatant it was. They didn't <laughs> really do a lot to hide that. Right. Right. Yeah. It's, and I, I'm sure it, it's, it's one of those things too, where it's like you, even just looking, you know, one layer below whatever the surface you can call it, it, it just becomes so like, you know, you don't want to compare it to, you know, the matrix red pill, blue pill, because that's a whole loaded statement these days. But uh, that just that idea of like, oh, yeah, if you put a little effort into it, you know, your point of view will not only be altered, but then you're going to look at all of the other things that you encounter with a different lens. And absolutely. And that's something that Feral House tries to do. Um, we've been tagged as like, oh, you're conspiracy mongers. No, no, we're not. We are um, truth mongers. <laughs> we sure. want people to be skeptical about everything, even what we're publishing, but also to read it and then do start thinking about things. If it's interesting to you, then as you said, do a little bit more legitimate research about the topic. My, um, my next book comes out in late September and it's titled Holy Food. And again, I, food history. I love food history because it is American history and it explores the, the convergence of American religious cults and communes, these new religious movements and their outsized influence on American food. And it, it's there. So every time you eat a little Debbie, it's because the seventh day Adventists, the, the first end of the worlders invented those. Right. <laughs> Which is incredible. That's uh. Anytime you hear those things, it's just like, really? For real? Or like something is, you know, silly as like, oh yeah, do you, do you look under, I mean, being myself being from the West coast, uh, you know, in and out burger and now they have, you know, Bible verses uh, underneath their, you know, cups, just like those things where it's like, you just mentioned it to one person. They're like, for real? It's like, yeah, just look. <laughs> just look. And that's everything. If anything, maybe that's the new Feral House slogan. Open your eyes. Right. Look. Just just look. Just pay attention a little bit. Just pay attention. Right. Yeah. So, and there's a lot of, you know, interesting and to me fascinating convergences. And I'm hoping, again, that other people are interested too. I think so. Um, and that's part of my personal work as well as the work of Feral House is, to, like we were talking about, to break through, to if we can get a few more people just to think a little bit, to look a little deeper, then we, we're happy. We're very happy about that. And then hope that those folks keep reading. Not okay. Yeah. 
you know, keep, keep reading. Don't, don't not read a book again. That's my only, I, I always, I cringe internally when I hear people and I I've heard them, they'll come right to me and say, Oh, I haven't read a book since high school. I'm like, Oh, you poor thing. Read a book. <laughs> totally. Yeah. It's like, it's there. You got, you got the library close to you, you know, and that's free. I don't know if you know that. <laughs> right. uh, I mean, and it's not a badge of honor to be ignorant. Our friends at evilgreed.net want you to know that they are an amazing web store solution for you as a record label or you as a band. But more importantly, they want you to know you can order stuff from them. And it's an incredible web store for a multitude of reasons. But before I tell you those reasons, go to evilgreed.net. Use this promo code 100words. That's going to get you 10% off of your entire order. And the thing that makes Evil Greed so special is they have a curated list of bands and record labels they work with. It isn't like the doors are wide open where they just basically include everybody and anybody. They have a very specific focus. If it's, you know, heavy, if it's what I deem as sort of artistic, you know, maybe boundary pushing, that is who they work with. So they recently just launched a new end pre-order, friend of the show, Brendan from Counterparts' band, friend of the show, Jay, who plays bass, friend of the show, Will. Anyways, I could go on, but a new end pre-order. They also sell stuff from Magnitude, Aborted, Chelsea Wolf, Brutus. They have so much great stuff that you will absolutely freak out over once you go to the website. Evilgreed.net. The promo code is 100 words, 10% off your entire order. They ship from Germany. Don't let that stop you, though, because... The shipping rates are very advantageous for us here in America, and it gets to you quick. I've ordered stuff from them. It's coming like a week. It's beautiful. So evilgreed.net, 100 words to promo code. Enjoy. Let's take a moment to breathe. Deep inhale. Extend your spine. Remain focused on what you're doing. If safe to do so, exhale slowly, leaning to one side. Inhale back to center. If safe to do so, exhale slowly to the opposite side. Find mental health resources at loveyourmindtoday.org. This message is brought to you by the Huntsman Mental Health Institute and the Ed Council. Like we were talking about, you know, you, you being in New York City and meeting with your distributors and stuff and uh, how to, um, you know, distribute a book, I imagine, is very, very similar to the way that, you know, records are distributed as far as the music industry side of things. And, you know, uh, looking at the pervasiveness of Amazon, and obviously the way that uh, so many uh, booksellers have obviously completely, you know, had to change their model based on that fact. Um, You know, how have you guys kind of, uh, I know that most of the sort of independent bookstores that still exist around the country, you know, are big, uh, or probably supporters of what it is that you do. How have you sort of adapted and changed to, uh, you know, meet the demands of where people are shopping for their books? Um, well, interestingly to me, there is actually maybe about 25, 30 actual bookstores in the United States. Um, a lot of the 800 plus other quote unquote independent bookstores aren't really um, bookstores. What they are are um, sales arms of what we call the big five. Um, Every other publisher, when you hear Penguin Random House and Simon & Schuster, those are all, and Hachette, those are all multinational giant corporations with multiple imprints to confuse people. And um, bookstores are, aside from like the few, the the 25, 30 that are truly independent and truly choosing what they're doing, it's actually pay to play. 
Um, and it's funny enough is James Daunt at a recent um, publishers, it, this is very inside information. James Daunt was giving a, a speech at um, a conference past week and actually, and he's the CEO, the new CEO of Barnes and Noble and actually said that out loud is one of their big changes is reducing the amount of, you know, paid placements. So think about that. If you just go into your mom and pop kind of neighborhood bookstore, that's not a weirdo bookstore. That's not a Quimby's. That's not a book soup in Los Angeles. That, you know, that isn't, um, let's say, McNally Jackson in in New York City. Um, And there's, again, there's some great bookstores in the country, um, but there's a lot of bad ones. When you walk into that normal, the normie bookstore, and if you look at that front table and all those books out there, no, you're looking at those books that have been paid to be placed there. The same as when you go to the grocery store and see the cereal at eye level, that's a paid placement. So are those books. Yep. Oh, for sure. I mean, I remember like for years I worked at uh, rec- that record label Century Media Records. And this is, you know, in the 2000s when, you know, companies and stores like, you know, Best Buy and everything like CDs were obviously still in. And they that was a huge, you know, <laughs> loss leader for them where they're like, oh, yeah, you know, some person is going to come in and buy the latest, you know, metal arch enemy record or whatever. And then they'll buy, you know, a refrigerator or what have you. But it's like the amount of money that we as a record label had to contribute to get those, you know, end caps. It, it would just, you couldn't even describe it to a person because they'd be like, wait, you had to pay that much to do that just to like get me to walk by it. And it's like, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's the truth. And so this leads to it. So thank you for confirming a lot. If I say that out loud and, and again, I'm, I'm, I'm a bit of a Cassandra and I say these things out loud and nobody believes me, you know, outside <laughs> of the industry. I'm like, no, it's true. It's um, true. Yeah. Um, so when you ask, how do we approach is I'm, I'm a big fan of direct communication. So we have an, a very active newsletter and, and it's me. If you're talking to, if you email back, it's me. Um, you know, and I, I, I send out goodies to loyal people cause I want that direct relationship. So we're very much into, um, directly communicating with our fans and, and, and the people and maybe even our not fans, you can still don't, don't swear at me. Cause then I'll won't answer, but you know, you can right. send me an email and I'll answer you. Um, but the direct, and then also really working with the bookstores that are truly bookstores that are quote unquote, our bookstores, and we know who they are, they know who they are and, and finding that audience and working with those people. I was just in Detroit this past weekend. We did, um, an event in partnership with third man records. Oh, right. Yeah. Third man is a fantastic company. They also have a publishing arm that, and they've, publish really wonderful books, um, music books and poetry, mostly Um, great stuff. But again, a lot of us independent publishers um, who are working in a, in similar, similar areas, we actually will work together because we understand that what's interesting to their fans would be interesting to our fans and, and vice versa. And so that's another way that in, again, um, Amazon is, you know, is Amazon. We're not going to fight against it, but, you know, working again in non-traditional spaces. Um, I love working with record stores, especially with a lot of our music titles. They, they're a great, you know, um, of interest in record stores as well. So I do a lot of um, kind of non-traditional marketing, so to speak. Right. Yeah. Well, and the, the idea that the, you know, the, what's the saying high tide raises all ships and it's like, yeah, if you, find those partners that you work not only well with, but it serves both 
party's interests well. It's just like, yeah, why not? Everybody wins when we do this. And, and that's the, again, goes back to, for me to my old, you know, punk DIY days, right? Is you trade shows, right? You go to a town, yeah, totally. you, trade, you trade shows with bands. There's bands you become friends with and there's, you know, you develop relationships over the years. And this it, same goes for any kind of artistic outlet. You, you start to get to know folks and you enjoy working with, uh, with, with people and you want to work with them again. And that goes for creators, people writing books. Um, that goes to the record stores and bookstores we work with. Um, you know, Aunt Sally's Mystery Shack, you know, in Poughkeepsie is not not going to stock, you know, Lords of Chaos. <laughs> right. <laughs> totally. Yeah. They're like, we can't, uh, b- books aren't really our thing. So yeah, this is fine. Yeah. <laughs> um, the, I love, and I know this was a uh, part of your uh, brainchild in regards to the coloring books, like <laughs> doing I just love that aspect of it because, you know, not only is it kind of flipping the idea of a color book on its head by, you know, putting quote unquote adult like subjects in there. Um, was that just something fun that you, you know, like a shower thought that popped into your head and you were like, yeah, actually that would be fun to do. It was, it was, we were kind of laughing at the, I, the, it was trending. It was starting to trend and, and Adam was mocking it and we were just laughing at, I can't believe that people actually are doing this. Adults are like, you know, coloring in flowers and rainbows. And, um, and then the more we laughed about it, the more we thought how, you know, again, the juxtaposition of like, well, what if we did our version of coloring books? Um, and th- that's how they came about. Um, I, I loved working, um, on the black metal coloring book. Right. Uh, one, we, I, we roped in a friend, Jason Atomic, um, who runs the Satanic Mojo comics out of London. He's a great guy. And between he and I, we, we recruited, and that's, this is the other secret bit of it fun, is if you look at those coloring books, the artists who contributed items are fantastic artists on their own. This is not just a generic coloring book. This is, you, you're getting prints essentially of really great line drawings by fantastic artists. You know, so if you don't, even if you don't color it in, you've got a book of really great prints. Of course. Yeah. It's like, this is, this is art, whether you touch it or you don't. (laughs) And that was kind of, that, that was my little poke and pushback of, again, the subversiveness of it, of, all right, we'll do a coloring book, but we'll, we'll do it our way. Right. Exactly. (laughs) Um, Many people, I mean, in regards to publishing and the democratization of the way that people can distribute their material, not only, you know, bands and uh, record labels and all that sort of stuff, uh, but I know many people self-publish and, you know, can clearly find some levels of distribution. When, you know, you're talking to people, not like you're, you know, making a pitch at them where like, it's like, oh, it's self-publish or work with us. And maybe you do have those conversations, but what do, what's kind of your, your, I guess, your pitch or your angle in regards to working with uh, Feral House Publishing? Um, I, I always tell folks that we're an independent and traditional publisher. And so what that means is that the distribution is there. But we also are the folks, we're doing the editing, we're doing the design, um, and we're, we pay for that. That's, you know, we're paying for that. And so the the knock against many self-printed books is that it's just one person doing it and it doesn't have the editing. It doesn't have the copy editing. It doesn't have the design and it, it looks homemade. Um, whereas the idea uh, truly of publishing is collaborative, you know, so an author takes it so far. And then when an editor comes in, 
um, we're all looking to serve the book, to make the book the best book it can be. And a lot of times the creator, the writers have lost their perspective. They've spent so much time with it um, that they, they just can't see where there might be gaps or flaws that can be improved with revision or cutting. But that's where a, a publisher comes in. And so that's my, my pitch is that if you want the best book possible, then you should definitely work with a publisher. Um, the other thing that we, we get a lot, and, and this is just one of the, of the negative signs for me that I don't want to work with somebody, is there is often a, a misdirected expectation that publishing a book is going to get you rich and or famous. <laughs> sure. That's not going to happen. Right. Yeah. You're like, um, you, you know, you know what happens is like, uh, yeah, people, you know, your book gets out there and, um, you know, you get on the Oprah's book club or Reese Witherspoon's book club and then, yeah, you're minted and you're famous. <laughs> and Great. Bless. Bless to anybody who takes that route. Um, right. For, for Feral House, for what we publish and the authors that we work with and the ideas that we work with, you know, they are, you're not going to get that, you know, that level. But will you get some, you know, sales and, and recognition? And will your ideas get put out to the public forum? Absolutely, yes. More so than if you self-printed it, especially um, if you're not a great hustler or marketer. And I think, and that's what's lost. Even even traditional publishing, um, if, if you listen to any authors, even if they're published with a big five, you'll he hear a lot of whining about, you know, them having to do work and on promoting their book. And I'm like, duh, you should always be promoting your stuff. That is, again, comes back from our punk DIY, even the metal roots, right? You better, if you want it out there, you better be talking about it and pushing it. Um, so if you're that kind of person to begin with, sure. And you've got great design sense and you're, you can separate your, separate your brain to be able to edit your own work. Okay, go. Great self-publish and you might do really well with it. But most folks don't have that level of skills, all of the skills to be able to do that. Right. Right. Sure. And then that's where, you know, you can plug into the ecosystem that you've been able to, you know, uh, observe and create and modify over time to be like, okay, well, yeah, this is how you can work with us and how your stuff can get out there. Right. And, and I think in that that's my pitch when you ask like how, why, why work with an independent publisher over just self printing really. And, and that's why. Yep. Makes sense. Um, I have to put you on the spot in regards to, cause I know that uh, it's probably asked you, it's like, you know, what's your best selling book or whatever. <laughs> um, I, I'll twist it a little bit where it's just like, I guess what, um, has maybe been a surprising bestseller. And I don't mean of the fact that, you know, it's like, Oh, we expected this book to sell seven copies because we didn't think it was that good. Cause clearly you wouldn't have put it out in the first place if you uh, had that expectation. But, um, you know, if you putting you on the spot, uh, what book has been kind of, uh, you know, surprising for you reaching a wider audience than you maybe originally intended it to have? Um, I have, uh, let's see, I have ones that are su surprising in kind of different ways. They reach different people. And, and to your point, I'm looking over at my, the, the work, my bookshelf there and, and just seeing what pops out at me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, Harley, we published Harley Flanagan's memoir, in yep. 2016. And that to me is, is wonderfully surprising. I mean, we published it because we knew that Harley's story, it, he actually has a unique life and a, a, a life experience that 
no one has ever lived. And it's interesting and made us want to publish the book. But the surprising fact is that even almost five years later, almost more, more than five years, is people still are very interested in Harley's story. So much so that it's almost given Harley a new kind of lease on his career. He's touring again. They're recording again. There's right. a, a documentary being filmed of his life based on his memoir and, of course, then working with him. And that, to me, has been wonderfully, um, really re- rewarding to see that because we put a lot of work into that book. So did Harley, of course. But to see that and grow and find a new generation of audience and readers and then now fans, that has been a, a really satisfying kind of project to work on. That's awesome. That's cool. Yeah. I just, I, because I, I imagine that certain people, um, I mean, especially w- whatever, like looking at the music side of things, like, uh, would look at American hardcore and then obviously getting adapted into, you know, a documentary, um, that they would, uh, there, there are certain expectations that people have where it's just like, Oh, if it turned into this, then like, you know, it has to be like the best selling thing. And it's like, well, not always the case. <laughs> And it's, you know, and that's like a good best selling. Does American hardcore still sell? Absolutely. Um, yep. And that's, we keep it in print. Same with Lords of Chaos. Same with the Anton LaVey books. Yep. Um, you know, those are, there's always a baby witch somewhere who right. wants, wants to read about <laughs> Uncle Anton. Totally. Um, so, you know, that that's great. And uh, we need those. And from, you asked earlier about the business stuff. We need those. We need books that will have interest and hold interest over time and industry called backlist because that helps sustain that. Those are books that help us then publish new books. Of course. Yeah. It's like you, you need to be able to build the catalog where it's like, okay, we know for a fact that the, you know, we'll be able to quote unquote, move these units <laughs> regularly because these books have become, you know, part of like the, the starter kit for people getting interested in, you know, whatever it is from a subculture side of things. But it's like the, those will be able to fund the stories of the future as cliched as that sounds. Right. And it's also for us, again, coming from, a, you know, I'd say it again, this kind of more of a subversive outsider culture. It's very satisfying at royalty time to be able to send um, like say Stephen Blush, who wrote American Hardcore, a check every year since 1999. We've been sending right. him a check. That's fantastic. I love that. I love that we can do that. I love that his his work that he poured so much into to write the book and then traveling around promoting it over the years. He he's he's earned every penny, and I'm we're so happy to send him every penny. Yeah, sure. I know it's okay. Your your dogs are very your dogs are very excited about royalties as well. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's totally fine. Again, would would I say that you know somebody's getting rich? No, but it's still you know it's it's there's an old German saying. It's nice to make the ends meet, but it's even better to tie a bow. So you know, right? I look at that is like so you know if you look at um and I think even with music. Um, releasing records and things. It's great. It's satisfying to get your, your art out there, your music out there, your books out there. And it's even a little more satisfying if you don't lose money on it and make it maybe even make a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one last thing I wanted to hit on in regards to uh, just kind of the 
business side of things. Um, just because, uh, you know, a lot of people that uh, interact with this show, you know, come from the music background and they have some understanding of the publishing industry, but not to the extent where it's like, you know, advances where it's just like, I presume that you guys do not operate off of like, all right, we're going to give you a, you know, a $40,000 advance and go off and write your book and c- come back to us. Um, I- I'm guessing that's the rough structure of how you guys are operating of just like, yes, we'll, we'll, pour in the resources as far as, you know, like you said, editing and obviously getting uh, the the book out there as far as distribution, but you're not in the, uh, you know, <laughs> Penguin Random House, uh, you know, right. we'll give you a seven figure advances. So, and that's, and just that, that reminder is, as you said, you're, you're, you've got a savvy audience. So everybody understands that, that an advance isn't a gift. It's an advance. It's essentially a loan on yep. pre- predicted sales. And so I always tell folks is, and so we pay a little bit of advance, a low sure. advance, a, like a, you know, essentially an honorarium, if you will. Um, not, not $40,000. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it, we pay very fair royalties. And so I always tell folks is that if you don't need it up front, it, you get, be- it's better coming on the back end. You know, sure. if you can be patient, you'll actually get more. Um, and again, we're not very rare occasions. Do we, we, we are not a hybrid. We don't ask people to purchase a set amount of books. We don't ask them to contribute any money to the production with an asterisk rare exception. If you, if you need to use an image that costs, you know, a thousand dollars from Getty, I might ask you to pitch in for that one. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> so if you make expensive choices and, and hold the line on those, then I might ask you to pony up for those. But aside from that, we, you know, we, we, as the publisher absorb all of the risk, the writer doesn't absorb the risk. And so, you know, that's why we, we say, you know, little to no advances, but really super fair royalties. And, you, you know, if you need time, we also will work with folks on a development. So I do get pitches, especially if I know somebody or they've written for a book for us before. Um, if you come to me with a really good idea and I'll say, that sounds great. Keep work on it. You know, it, once we get to first draft, then we'll get to contract and, you know, have, I've called it the promise ring, right? Of right. Just, you know, we've got that, the, the gentleman's agreement that this book, we like it. We know you, you're going to finish it. And when you're ready, we're going to publish it. Um, and so, you know, again, it comes back to the, the DIY days. We're going to have these kind of friendly agreements and we want those. We want this to be that way. Um, and we, we continue to do things that way. And sometimes, you know, there's books that don't get published. There's writing a book is really challenging. It's difficult. It's homework every night for a year, essentially. And then more after that. Um, and some people don't cross the finish line. And, you know, that that's the reality of it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> everyone likes the idea of writing a book until it actually comes down to the work. And it's like, Oh yeah. Like I got to do this. It's like, yeah, this, there's a lot. <laughs> there's a lot. And then you, then you got to go through the editing process and have someone like me saying, you know, you're using diminishing modifiers. You know, you've repeated that seven <laughs> times, you know, you're missing this whole section here. You know, that joke doesn't work here. That's pretty right. dumb. You know? So, <laughs> yeah. And then you're just like, damn it, Christina, I, I wish I wouldn't have even spoken to you in the first place. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I, I always tell people that you were going to have one argument minimum, minimum right. during the process, at least one, maybe more, but I promise I, 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 I'm not a yeller. And so I won't ever yell at you. <laughs> right. 
Yeah, you're like, this is all coming from a good place to make the thing better as opposed exactly. to I just want to pick a fight. <laughs> Always. It's, it's just not in my nature. Yeah. Well, Christina, I really appreciate you hanging out with me. And thank you for uh, taking the time to talk about uh, all the cool book stuff. Oh, thank you, Ray. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Uh, I, I really appreciate the opportunity to kind of talk about what Farrell is doing, has done, and, and is doing in the future. Okay. Hopefully you are walking away from that conversation just a little bit smarter because, uh, yeah, Christina was just eloquent and I loved having that discussion with her. So go check out her new book, Holy Food. You can easily obtain it by going to feralhouse.com, poking around the site, go to their store and just order so many books from them (laughs) because I myself own at least six or seven of them. But, uh, yeah. So if you need any recommendations, of course, reach out hunterbirdspodcast at gmail.com. I could point you in the right direction. Anyways, next week, talk about the juxtaposition, you know, the dark, the light and everything in between. I have JT Woodruff, who is the vocalist and guitarist from Hawthorne Heights, who frankly, I mean, I don't like as a band (laughs) and that's no shots against JT at all. But that, uh, you know, we talk about that. We talk about the idea that uh, I personally have been drawn to JT. I'm friends with uh, other people that play in Hawthorne Heights. And uh, it's one of those things that even though you may not, you know, enjoy sonically what a band is all about, or you think they may be corny, there's more than meets the eye. And the fact that Hawthorne Heights has existed for the better part of, you know, 20 years now is meaningful to me. And I know to the people that are complete Hawthorne Heights devotees. And uh, I'd love to be able to have this conversation. Plus, JT's edge. And anytime a person is straight edge and an adult, I'm always a fan of that. So next week, JT from Hawthorne Heights. Until then, please be safe, everybody. The show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Trust me in saying that no matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you. And how you manage them can make all of the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. My simple solution to the problem was remove people from the scene and help them feel safer. In response to attacks against Asian Americans... Maddie Park raised over $250,000 to donate cab rides to the Asian community. There is so much more work to be done. We really need to come together and tackle this issue as a community. Support the Asian community. Learn how at lovehasnolabels.com. Brought to you by Love Has No Labels and the Ad Council. It's the Breakfast Club, the world's most dangerous morning show. Hey! Angela Yee is kind of like the big sister that always pokes you in the forehead. <laughs> That's not how it goes? That's not how anything goes. Yimby's really like a robot. One of the best DJs ever. Believe that. Charlamagne is the wild card. And I'm about to give somebody the credit they deserve for being stupid. I know, that's right. (laughs) What is wrong with you? Listen to The Breakfast Club weekday mornings from 6 to 10 on 106.7 The Beat. Columbus is real hip-hop and R&B.